Welcome to another edition of Toby Haydokes, whose round I've snared another victim. To be fair, I could have kidnapped him and taken him back to a castle in the Middle Ages, but I didn't. Well, I'm uh, I'm being given the hospitality of a gentleman whose Doctor Who story was broadcast in the week that I was born. So <laughs> I'm going to ask him to tell me who he is and why I'm talking to him about Doctor Who. Well, my name's Donald Pellmere, and I think I made my Doctor Who the uh, the Time Warrior. It, I think it was 1974. Well, it was seven, you made it in seventy three, and it was broadcast oh, in seventy four. I was broad, yeah. oh, Thank you for seventy three. I got it was the third Doctor Who. It was um, no, his name's gone out of my head. John Pertwee. Thank you very much. It was John Pertwee, um, and four episodes. Uh, I was very glad because I found there was another actor in it I knew who I'd worked with in um, at the Salisbury Playhouse when he was young. Now, am I going to be able to recall his name? He played the villain. David Dacre, was it? Thank you. Uh, didn't it, somebody? Somebody told me that he had. He, did he do some carpentry for you or something? David oh, Dacre? how did you learn? Somebody. That? Oh, when I said I was meeting you, somebody sent me a message and said, "Don't forget to ask him about David Dacre's carpentry." Well, yes, <laughs> um, we were. I mean, he started off at the time he was on stage management with uh, in Salisbury Rep with dear old um, Reggie Salberg in charge. Um, and he wanted to act, and they eventually let him have a part, and oddly enough, it was a, in a play that even I was allowed to direct. They got the idea I might be able to direct, and they were mistaken, actually. So I directed David in his first part. I think it was an adaptation of one of the E.M. Forster novels. He was very good, and then they realised, oh, this man can act, and of course they, he began getting getting parts. Um, yes, I, I needed uh, a bed. Oddly, I didn't really like the ones I saw to buy. And, I, and David said, oh, he could knock me up something. And bless him, he did. Uh, a very simple thing, almost like a box, I suppose, on casters, very easy to move and could be dismantled easily. Uh, and I had it until I left my main house about six or eight years ago now. So I had it, this bed, since 19... When did I meet David? 1962. I've had this bed since the mid-1960s until quite recently. <laughs> wow, that was all... So it's a good yes, craft. It was, no, it was very good. You know, I just had to put a mattress on top of it. No, he was a very handy chap. A nice man, very nice man. So how would you have got the part in uh, The Time Warrior? Had you worked with the director, Alan Bromley, before? No. I knew his name. He was... No, I really don't know how I got it, I'm afraid. I can't remember. And do, do you remember Alan? Because he didn't do a lot of Doctor Who, actually. Did... I don't. To be quite honest, I'm, I suppose he directed it. Mm. I think the only really very clear memory I have of was a thing that they called the speed run. Yeah. And for, because we would rehearse it and then um, when it got to the later stages and we might be ready to uh, 
um, recorded in another day or two, they had started having these things called speed runs, when you just simply tried to do the whole thing as fast as you possibly could, but with all the appropriate movements as well. So it became rather like a frantic, speeded up, old-fashioned film, you know. Yeah. Uh, and I, that sticks in my memory because it was so funny. No, I mean, all the, in those days it was lovely because we still had the North Acton rehearsal rooms where anything you wanted was on tap. You know, if you needed a prop or what, or anything, you rang up and it turned up within 10 minutes, perhaps at the most. Um, we all had the lovely canteen on hand, of course, and you met other people. I, I miss the old North Acton rehearsal rooms. Um I just remember they were very enjoyable. I mean, uh, Pertwee was nice and easy. Um, as long as you knew your lines, you know, and, and remembered where you were supposed to move. And uh, it was um, a very, a very um, enjoyable experience. Have you seen it recently? Have I seen... I, yes, I have. I, when it first came out, I never saw it. Because I was mostly in the theatre and I was working in the evening, so I didn't see it. And then, of course, it wasn't, re you know, you didn't get recorded repeats in those days as, as it happens now. But it so happens that here, where I'm living now, is a man who was a BBC producer. And lo and behold, he has lots and lots and lots of recordings, and among them, he's got my Doctor Who. Ha! Um,. So this was, I saw it um, fairly recently, for the first time, I think, in its entirety. I think it's so, a lovely character part that you've got, and I think you're very good in it. I think well, it's thank great. You. It is very nice. I think the way it was written, it sort of fizzles out. I mean, he... he I don't know why I have that. I'm sure that was a wig or had <laughs> floppy hair. I know the 70s was floppy hair, period, in general. Um... But I don't think that's my hair. I, really I think it's batty scientist hair, isn't it? It's, yes, uh... it's batty scientist. And, of course, I was sorry that I had to lose my spectacles because spectacles are a great um, <laughs> asset as a, <laughs> as a character inter inter interpretation. Um, so I had to manage and try to look short-sighted thereafter. But then when they get captured and turn up in the... Uh, 1110 or whatever it, uh, in this weird castle um, I know I helped on the escape but after that the character seems to sort of you do get to whack the monster on the back of the head with a with a baseball bat or some such don't you you have quite a heroic moment there did I? yeah yeah when when Kevin Lindsay's confronting John Pert were you Oh, uh, I, and, that's and, right. Uh, I do. Yes, I hit him. With, I don't know what it was. I hit him with. It's. It's. Uh, I always loved the 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 denouement, though, which of course was the the man who I have met at, um, since who plays the archer. Ah, oh, Jeremy Bullock. Yes, Jeremy Bullock. Thank you. Yeah, I love that idea that this monster can only be killed. For some reason, his breathing apparatus is through a. A, a, a thing at the back of his neck mm. which looks like an overflow pipe <laughs> from a loo <laughs> but that's where he can be killed you have so the arrow the the archer is such he's such an accurate archer like robin hood that that's what kills him 
the arrow f- hits right. this thing in the back of the necrobic vent. Stops him breathing, yeah. so he dies. <laughs> <laughs> but I, of course, I never really. Well, I did see a bit of him, of course, in his costume. But that poor man playing the the horrible monster. Yeah, Kevin Lindsay. Kevin Lindsay having to work in that extraordinary. And he had a heart condition as well. He was well, he did. He died, didn't he? Yeah. Not so very long after. A couple after, of years later, after, only, yeah. About a couple of years after that, he died. Shame. It's, uh, uh, what else? I'm afraid I... Really... No, well, that's OK. Doc Doc Who is just a part of uh, why we're meeting today. So take me back, Donald. I mean, you've been acting for the entirety of my life, so you've, we've, got, a, we've well... got an incredible career to cover. So what, what, what began it? What made you decide to tread the boards? Oh, I became, I had, well, I'm being careful what I say. I mean, I was born in Middlesbrough, up in northeast Yorkshire, which, of course, is a very heavily industrial iron and steel town, and then, uh, well, it was ICI chemical works and things. Um, and by the time of my, my youth, it no, it no longer had a theatre. Um... And it was not, perhaps, a very good jumping-off point for a theatrical career. Well, I say it didn't have a theatre. I'm sorry, I'm telling a lie. It did have the Empire, which was a theatre of variety, when the old days of variety theatre. And I was, when I was very young, four or five only, taken to see a pantomime there one Christmas. And after that, I was stage-struck. It was just seeing this space and all the coloured light. Um, I didn't understand what the, the Ugly Sisters were about. I couldn't work work out what they were meant to be. They didn't make me laugh. <laughs> <laughs> I just thought, what are they? <laughs> it baffled me. But I loved um, the, the, the pretty bits when there was nice lighting and people dancing. And I just was fascinated by the, the theatre. And if I was given a box of uh, building bricks, I would build a theatre. If I was given a box of Meccano, I built a theatre <laughs> in some way. Everything was turned into theatre right through my childhood. And, um, of course, I, then I saw very little. I was fed on a diet of um, films of the 30s and 40s, really. We went to the cinema. But it was the actual stage that fascinated me and... Occasionally I saw another pantomime, but that was about all. And it's got a long story short, eventually I had to join the army when I was 18. So I lost five years of my youth serving my country as best I could. (laughs) Uh, But I was clueless. I did not know how to set about getting into the theatre. And unfortunately I never seemed to meet anybody who could give me a clue as to how to go about it. I didn't know anything about drama schools. Um, some, when it was mentioned once, I remember, they said oh, it costs a lot of money you know, to go to a drama school, which was probably untrue. Um, so when I left the army, I found myself signed up to become a teacher, which was a great mistake, I'm afraid. And I stuck it for three years, being a teacher. And then locally, at a little seaside town near Middlesbrough called Redcar, 
It had a little theatre on the, the, typically on the promenade, but it was built, the body of it was built on the beach, and a small rep company had turned up. And eventually they were going to try to do Twelfth Night. Well, that's quite a large cast, and an unusual thing for a weekly rep to try to do, really. Uh, my father got wind of this by chatting with some of the cast in a restaurant somewhere in um, in the town. And, of course, he boastfully said, oh, my son does some acting with the Middlesbrough Little. Well, the Middlesbrough Little was a very unusual um, amateur group. When Middlesbrough lost its theatres, all the local groups in the area banded together to make one big amateur group. And they used to put on a play once every four or six weeks. And I think that was why a, pro a professional rep could never get a foothold in Middlesbrough because the, the, the little was doing it. So I was doing a few plays with them and these um, people at the little red car rep said, would I get in touch with the director? So I did, of course, straight away. And he cast me as um, Sebastian, the twin. And I thought, this is my chance. I've got to get out of teaching and into theatre somehow. And I pestered the manager, having been told that he was going to open another season in Tunbridge Wells. He was going to break four, break out and open down south. And he said, no, no, it was silly. I had a good job as a teacher. He was, um, he was an odd little man. He actually ran a series of, um, not a series, what's the word for it, a small chain, it would be called now, of fruit and veg stores and fish store and a fish store, fish stores, fresh fish. So the people he, he used his money, because he was stage struck, I think, to form this little company. And um, because of his uh, business with the fruit and veg and so on, he was known to his theatrical employees as Old Fish and Fruit, <laughs> but very disrespectfully. W.H. Lorraine is his name. Well, I still kept pestering him, and eventually he said, oh, I can't, Donald, I've got to go to London to, settle, to get it all settled, and uh, I, I won't have time. And I said, well, I could meet you on the train, because I knew he had to get to Darlington, to the main line. And so that's what I did. I, I got on the train with my set of photographs and what I'd done in amateur theatre and, and, and bored the poor man for half an hour till on the way to Darlington. And he caved in and gave me a job as an ASM. So I chucked teaching, thank goodness. And it would be 1953, the year our dear Queen was crowned. I started down at Tunbridge Wells in Weekly Rep. My goodness. So you threw away the security of a regular job for the dream I of the theatre? I didn't theater. care about the security. I mean, this, this job down at Tunbridge Wells was for a six-week season, after which there would be nothing, and I hadn't a clue as to how to get on and find other work. But Old Fish and Fruit rescued me and took me back up north for a while into a, one, another company who was running. 
Um, and then I just began writing. In those days, you'd write to the director of the theatre and say what you'd done. And, of course, I was still... I was not as young as I should have been to get started in theatre. I was nearly... I was either 28 or 29 when I started, which is late. Mm. But, um, you know, the, the casting in those days was the old-fashioned... Um, uh, leading man, leading lady, character man, character lady, juvenile girl, juvenile young man, and that, all that sort of, a lot of that kind of casting. And I think I was pretty uh, versatile. Um, so just through your name becoming known a little bit or word of mouth, I just bounced from rep to rep, you know, for a long time. I did years of weekly. Mm. And if you were, I was very lucky. I eventually ended up at Southport with a director called Donald Bodley. And considering it was weekly rep, I was very fortunate. He was a very clever director. He knew just how much might be achieved in only a week. <clears throat> but he wouldn't have any uh, slipshod work. You had to know the lines. And you had to treat, I mean, if, if people said, oh, God, another Agatha Christie, you know, <laughs> he said, what do you mean? He said, people are paying to come and see this. And you are being paid for doing it. You treat it as, well, as seriously as you would something by Oscar Wilde or Bernard Shaw. You know, he, um, and also he, taught, he trained you through being rather fierce how to behave at rehearsal. Um, Woe betide you if you weren't in a scene and you sat at the back of the rehearsal. Well, because then in those days we were just rehearsed on stage. We didn't have rehearsal rooms. Hmm. If you sat at the back of the set and opened the, the, the newspaper you'd bought that morning, eventually everything would go quiet and you'd find Donald piercing stare at you saying, are you in this play, you know? And you'd say, well, well, I'm not in this scene, Mr. Bodley. How do you know your character isn't referred to in this scene? Something that might affect you? No, you, he bloody well made you pay attention. <clears throat> and um, if you lit, of course, masses of smoking in those days. You know, people, it was the smoking period, and even I had caught it. But woe betide you if you lit up a fag while you were rehearsing. He would look at you and say, I really want to smoke in this scene. And you say, well, no, no, no. Well, put the damn thing out, he would say. He, I, I really admired him. And um, I stayed four years. <laughs> I must have done hundreds of plays, a play a week. And except for the pantos, which, which he, wrote, he wrote wonderful pantos. Absolutely wonderful. I was rather put out to find out that my first pantomime was Golden Locks and the Three Bears. And I hadn't a clue when I went what I was supposed to be playing. He just said, come and do the panto. And I found I was cast as Father Bear. I thought, oh my Lord. No, I think I was all of 30 years old then. A bear. Well, we started rehearsing. And he drilled all the uh, chorus musical numbers, everything. He was a great one for drilling. But nobody told me what I was going to look like as this bear. And eventually, after a week had gone by, I said to somebody, I said, I have a clue what am I supposed to 
you know, will have I given a bear's costume or something? I, you know. And Earth said, oh, go and talk to Jane. She's the scenic artist. Go and talk to Jane, she'll tell you. So I found the scenic artist and said, um, what, what do I do about this big being a bear? Oh, love, she said, yes. Well, over there in the corner, you'll find some brown felt and there's a lot of wire. Make yourself a bear's head. <laughs> oh, I said, yes, she said, you do it with Jean. Now, Jean was Jean Alexander. Oh. Who was my, who she was, mummy bear. Hilda Ogden. So I had four, I had four years <laughs> with, with Jean, who became Hilda Ogden eventually. Four years with her in Panto, and we, um, I still got photographs of um, the mum, she as mummy bear and me as daddy bear. Uh, I know we had a nice little number and a dance. You are my honeysuckle. I am the bee we had to do. The Panthers were one, there was, oh, I don't know, I love those rep years, actually. Um, we used to have a big party once a year at New Year, just when the Panto was perhaps finishing. It only ran for about two weeks, the Panto. But it was packed all the time. And we used to have this big New Year's Eve party. And even Donald relaxed and he said, oh, it was he good to get drunk once a year. <laughs> <laughs> but only after the show. After yeah. the show, not before it. Anyway, it, I, 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 I don't... People think now, good grief, you know, play in a week. It must have been... What could you do in a week? Well, with a good director, it's just astonishing. Well, and your machine, I guess, if you're doing that week in, week out, the, the machine is well-oiled, well, I would think. Well, I mean, thank goodness, although I'm now in the very sear and yellow, my memory's still there. And I think, I, I can't remember things like the dates of kings and queens and all that, but for learning a part for lines, um, it's, luckily it still, still works. Well, this is the astonishing thing because a lot of I've spoken to a lot of actors over the course of this project, and the vast majority of them have, have you know, hung up their boots. But you're still, you're still going strong and. Well, I'm yeah. I don't get very much now. I mean, once you're ninety, they worry about are you going to collapse on the spot <laughs> or, or something. Um, no, I do little things. I do some voiceovers. Um, uh, I've done. Um, one or two things, you know, you get summoned abroad for a commercial. Oh, I had a lovely thing abroad two years ago for um, Dutch television, for uh, it was a government information film. I discovered it was the title was Abuse of the Elderly. <laughs> <laughs> so, but um, that's nice because they, um, you know, they put you up in an hotel and... Um, and treat you quite royally. It was an enjoyable thing to do. Well, you did Little Britain as well, didn't you, a few years ago? Oh, yeah, so, you know, the... And you, well, of course, eventually, the agency I was with, you get put up for things, and... Um, I'm not sure at the time whether I'd ever actually seen a Little Britain. I've heard people talking about it. And then I maybe maybe I did see one at one time. And anyway, I I found that I had to go up to um, oh dear me, it's on the on, on the coast, Southwold, on the coast to make this um, 
this thing for um, for Little Britain, and I had to play a waiter in a cafe. Well, personally, I've never never known a seaside cafe which has a waiter. You know, you might have a girl who pops round, but this was a waiter for some reason to take the orders. And this pair turned up on a tandem <laughs> in Edwardian ladies' dress, <laughs> cycling through Southworld. Well, of course, they'd, they'd hired this cafe for the, to use it for the day. And uh, so you have to adapt quickly. I thought, <laughs> you have to treat them like just as though they were proper ladies, you know, they're quite normal people. They happen to be wearing dress that's totally 50 years out of date or whatever. <laughs> they were very nice, nice, nice and easy to work with. Um, and that was only, it's a day's a day shoot, it takes a day to do it. But I mean, because you, you said to me when we initially contacted, you said, oh, I haven't done an awful lot of television, but you've done, I mean, you've done, I mean, it's a TV CV that I think would be the envy of an actor nowadays. I mean, that's partially because so little television is made now. But you started television in, what, 1959? I did do one telly for ITV when it was very new, when the commercial breaks were all done, how can I so say, manual. In other words, um, there was no um, recording. It had to be in actual time. Oh, so you were on the, the in the studio with there might be lots of different sets you know this is a set for the kitchen here's a set for the bedroom here's a set for all all that sort of thing and then you have the commercial break which is only 2 minutes or so isn't it mm. but it's done in actual time and so the floor manager for the show has to have if if actors have to change cosy or appear in another set there's a lot of racing around going while they're doing the commercials you're, you're frantically adding something or taking something off or rushing from the set you're in there to the other one at the other end of the studio, ready for go. You know. <laughs> it was quite quite funny, that. No, but the days before they could record, I mean, there were some ex quite extraordinary things. I know I, I did what must have been one of the very first uh, tellies that Anthony Andrews ever did. And it was... Um, it was a Cavaliers and Roundheads story, but I was cast as um, a Puritan. And in the scene, I were, I, I'd been attacked for being a Puritan, and I was lying down, wounded and you know, and, and unconscious, behind a big log. And then suddenly these two cavaliers ride up and decide they'll have a breather and sit down on the log and talk about how the, um, how the things are going for the cavaliers. And Anthony, uh, Anthony Andrews is one of these young cavaliers. And eventually I make a groan, which makes them realise there is somebody behind this log they're sitting on, so they turn round and look. And I had the most awful line to say... <laughs> I fluttered my eyelids and opened them, gazed up at Anthony Andrews and uttered the memorable line, The Lord in his mercy has sent me a young cavalier. <laughs> <laughs> at which point everybody collapses and we have to cut to do it again. Um, but um, 
I often thought if I ever met Anthony Andrews, should I remind him of that one? <laughs> and did you did you enjoy television, or did you, was your did you prefer theatre? I always preferred. I felt I knew what I was doing in theatre. I knew, you know, my place on the stage. I I, I no, I I liked being on stage. I think you need to. You need to do quite a bit of telly, and also I think in those days. I only remember one director who gave me a clue and I began to understand how I had to adapt for telly. And I wish I could remember his name, but I know it was for a Van der Valk series. That was, uh, I, I was going to ask you about him, a very highly regarded director called Douglas Camfield. Ah, thank you. Well, I do... Douglas Camfield, thank you very much. I'd originally been up for a different part in that. And when he saw me, he just shook his head and said, no. And then I thought, oh, well, that's that. And he said, but, and held me, cast me as um, the murderer. I thought, oh. And when we came to do it, he he simply said something like, "Um, don't demonstrate anything. Just think it. And I don't know, maybe there's something in my, I don't know, my face, my appearance, which suggests that you're not quite sure about me as to what I'm up to or what I'm thinking. Uh, I, I'd have liked more, you know, to have found another director like that who would... I needed guidance for, for camera work. And similarly with film, you see, hardly any film really, little bits. Um, no, it would have been nice to have a, an opportunity, but I, I, um, I never really got rolling, shall we say, in telly. Um, and I only remember ever doing one radio play, sound, you know, steam radio, as they call it. <laughs> Um, but theatre kept you very busy. Yes, I just um, I did, I did years of rep actually, but I mean, event you longed, of course, to get to the. I eventually got to a two weekly. Well, that was that was wonderful to have two weeks to rehearse, and <laughs> that was at Salisbury. And then, of course, you want to get to one of the biggies. Like in those days, there was Liverpool, Birmingham, and I eventually got to the Bristol Old Vic, where you had a month. Months for her. I mean, that was sheer luxury. A lovely, lovely year I spent at Bristol Old Vic, and then I even and I did go back again afterwards. Um, Stuart Bird, who mm. had been at um, the court, the old court, he came and did with two gentlemen, two gentlemen of Verona, and he had Russell. Can you think of an actor called Russell something? Russell Hunter. Thank you. Glad to you. Russell Hunter was playing Lance, the one with the dog. Mm. So you have to have a dog in it. Well, of course, the type of dog matters, I think, somewhat. It has to be a good comic dog, you know. But there was an actor in the company called Peter Whitbread, and he had a very big black Alsatian and offered this... Black Alsatian for the part of the dog, which was accepted. 
but it got very bored with being dragged on stage every night and it resolutely always sat with its back to the audience. It turned, it just heard this, uh, there's a mutter in the audience when an animal comes on. It turned around and sat with its back to it. And then, of course, Lawrence has a long scene, quite with the dog, talking to it as if it were a person, you know, telling it what to do and, and how bad it's been or how good it's been. And one night, Russell Hunter bent half down, you know, with hands on his, on his, um, on his knees and th nose to nose with this black Alsatian and said, you naughty boy, blah, blah, blah. And uh, the black Alsatian took a, a big chunk of it went <laughs> to Russell Hunter's nose. So anyway, Russell Hunter was very clever. He made, he made something out of it, of course, but he never afterwards, he never afterwards went... You know, really down to the dog like that. I don't think, personally, it was the right kind of dog. It should have been something silly, you know, a dachshund or a, or a funny little terrier. Um, but it was a lovely production. Um, what else? Oh, I can't remember them all. I did... Um, oh, you played Davis. I did Loot there. I loved ah. Loot. Um, Great with Marcia Warren playing the nurse, yeah. the awful nurse in it. <laughs> Wonderfully silly play. I didn't quite know what to make of it in Bristol at the time. It was very... It, it took a while for them to realise that this is ridiculously funny, you know. Well, I mean, that mirrors its genesis as a play, didn't it? Because it was its first production was a disaster, yes, wasn't it? Yes, the first one was. Uh, I mean, you know, the outrageous people using their mother's coffin to hide money in and all that. <laughs> Um, but in those days, Bristol had the um, what was called the Bristol Little to run, as well as the Royal in the old the old theatre. So you never knew quite knew which theatre you might be sent to. Um, and Lute, I think, was at the the Colston Hall, which was where the Little was. Um, I always remember Michael Horden apparently came from there. Now, before it became run by the Bristol Old Vic, it was run by another man. I'm afraid I've forgotten his name. I know Michael Horden was apparently a, a regular in the company there um, when he was young. And apparently his um, one words of advice were, learn the words as soon as possible. Because you can't act holding a book in your hand. And I often think of that. Because when you have several weeks rehearsal, there's a great temptation for the actor to go on holding the book and holding the book and holding the book. I think a director needs to be firm and say, no books on such and such a date, that's it. Because it's very off-putting trying to act with somebody who's holding a book in his hand. So I don't see why. I, a lot of actors seem to worry that they're... they're their interpretation of the part is going to get set in concrete if they learn it too quickly. And I can't understand that. I mean, what it's like a pianist can't play the Chopin mazurka until he's learned where the notes are, just the technique. And I think it's the same with acting. I think until you know what the lines are, then you should be free enough to pummel them about 
take them slower, faster, you know. Um, no, get rid of the book, I would say. So what have been your favourite parts, do you think? Oh, I mean, to talk... <laughs> I do have one or two, but they to talk about them, and if you, I mean, if those who know what I look like, you'd say, well, that's ridiculous, you, you can't possibly have played that part. But one of my most favourite parts of a play I've had the good fortune to do twice was Isaac Newton in Good King Charles's Golden Days by Bernard Shaw, which is hardly ever done, but I had the luck to come under the aegis of a director called Richard Digby Day, who did many, many Shaw plays. I think he's directed just about the whole canon. And he put on In Good King Charles's Golden Days, which is a humdinger of a play. And I, have we really got to wait for the accession of King Charles III before somebody wakes <laughs> up and does it again? It was written when Shaw was 80, and it's a damn sight more lively than some things written by people half that age. And there was I cast as Isaac Newton. Well, of course, I don't look remotely like Isaac Newton, he had a rather bony profile, rather distinguished, and I, I don't. But I think I, I, I knew what Shaw's version of Newton was about. I love that, and thank goodness I had the chance to do it twice. But other favourite parts, I think really, I don't, I don't know. I eventually realised that I enjoyed comedy most. I loved comedy parts rather than um, trying to move people, shall we say. Well, there's nothing like the laughter of an audience, is there, after a... Oh, it's wonderful. Phyllis Calvert used to say that. I eventually did a tour of um, Hay Fever with her. <clears throat> and she said, oh, I like a play you know, where you hear people laugh. Um, and and comedy's... <clears throat> I don't know, it's, it's so interesting because a tiny thing can alter... It, whether the laugh will come or not. You know, a, a breath or some little thing could wreck it. And so the reliance of one actor on another is, is tremendous, the, the teamwork that's necessary. Very, very satisfying to do comedy. I liked it. Well, I've uh, I've spoken I'm to you for sorry, longer than I promised I would. No, this is all this is all absolutely wonderful stuff. We ostensibly uh, gathered. Uh, well, you kind, kindly invited me to your home to talk about Doctor Who. So, can you understand why, after all these years, it is something that still interests people? The Doctor Who. No. No. <laughs> I I can't. Partly because I've seen so little. Of it, I mean, I've never really followed it. I mean, I read about it in the news, and I think, good gracious, that actor stopped doing it. Now it's another actor doing it. I think it's something that appealed to people. The people saw it when they were young, either still children or school children, or and it stays as a happy memory. Like my my childhood memories are, are Errol Flynn, Robin Hood, Seahawk, Swashbuckle, you know that sort of thing in the film. Me, it still has an appeal for me. I like seeing them again. And I imagine for the Doctor Who fans, it's uh, something they remember enjoying. But uh, for me, it was just part of the working working life, doing that. Well, I'm very glad to have done it. 
it's it's proved um, well. I don't know. It, it keeps popping up in my life still after all these years. Well, I think we're all glad you did it as well because it's a delightful part, delightfully played in a in a lovely story. I think it's a great adventure. Um, so I, I just ask you the final two questions. The first of which is, what is your charity? Donald, because uh, you, you've received no money for this, nor have I, but no, so we ask the listeners no, no. to donate to a charity. Well, I, I, the RSPCA, please. I mean, there are so many charities, and one would like to include, but uh, I do favour the RSPCA. I, I can't bear to hear and read of you know, cruelty to animals and, um, or neglect of them or not understanding how to deal with it with an animal and it's a tough job they have so the RSPCA please and the final question is this podcast was set up ostensibly to celebrate 50 years of Doctor Who so uh, what is your message to the Doctor Who fans listening out there from you Donald goodness we well carry on enjoying it and long may it rain you know I don't see why Doctor Who need ever stop well, wonderful, and he can be an immortal. <laughs> well, and, and I'm sure, so long as uh, so long as he's there, there will be people like me hanging on his every word, as I've just been doing to you. And it just remains for me to say, Donald Palmier, for your hospitality and for your fascinating conversation. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you. That was lovely. Well, you can uh, edit that. I mean, there's a lot of blabber. Th- that was great. That was absolutely lovely. That's plenty of very Thanks to Donald, whose company I enjoyed very much, and his charity is the RSPCA, which is www.rspca.org.uk, rspca.org.uk. Please donate if you can. Uh, I'm on Twitter at Toby Adoke, T-O-B-Y-H-A-D-O-K-E, and uh, I'll be throwing another one of these out into cyberspace in about seven days' time. Until then, thanks a lot. Ta-ta. Coming soon from Big Finish Productions. Inscape, our guide and friend, hear my plea. Save my children. Philip Hinchcliffe presents Doctor Who, The Genesis Chamber. Good morning, City. Today, we celebrate as President DeRosa Jans renews his pledge to uphold decency and citizenship in our beautiful colony. You brought these in here. Look at her. The girl's no better than a savage. What could be better than a savage? I'm sorry. That identity is not recognized. You are a threat to the colony. What are you, Doctor? Explain yourself. Have you been listening to me? Your village defenses wouldn't stop a current bun. Now get out of my way. The defiant leader. All city systems are under attack. Please remain in your seats. Presidential override. Open up. Louis, stop it. We should never have come. You are the Time Lord. You travel through time and relative dimensions in space. You have no right, no right, no right. Doctor. Your history is alarming. Big Finish. We love stories.